everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I am your host, Taylor Rockwell. Daryl is not with me. He is, I believe, over the Atlantic, flying back to the United States, or preparing to do so. Uh, so instead of Daryl, I've got Sports Illustrated's Grant Wall. Uh, Grant Wall is here to talk about the many different projects he's got going on. We talk about Throwback, uh, his podcast about the 1991 World Cup, specifically the U.S. squad before, during, and after the 91 World Cup. But we talk a bit about his book, uh, Masters of Modern Soccer. Uh, he has a chapter about Vincent Company. So we get into a little bit about Vincent Company, his move to Anderlecht. Will he be a good manager? What Grant Wall makes of that decision? And lastly, uh, their new series, Exploring Planet Football. It's a new video series by Sports Illustrated uh, in which, uh, at least for the first episode, Grant goes around and talks to uh, four different players, Chris Richards, Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney, and Christian Pulisic, uh, about like their experiences playing in Germany, why they chose to play in Germany, uh, and sort of the American experience of uh, playing soccer in Germany. Uh, so it's some great interviews there, and I would say it's a great interview with Grant because he talks all about the projects. He gives us kind of some inside looks as to the interviews and the insight he got from them. Uh, and then, you know, what else he's going to be doing this summer. So it's a good long interview uh, in the middle. You are going to hear from Daryl Grove. Uh, we're answering one listener question in the middle of the show, this one about what player, like, do we wish had reached their peak or prime for the U.S. national team, but failed to do so either because of injury or because they just kind of didn't meet expectations? We have different but sort of similar answers, so you can look forward to that, too. But for now, I will just turn it over to myself talking to Grant Wall. With me now, I've got Grant Wall of Sports Illustrated fame, but many other projects. Uh, Grant, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. I know you're very busy. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm never too busy to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, so uh, first of all, I appreciate that. That's good to know. I'm going to call you at all hours now. Uh, but <laughs> second, uh, we wanted to have you on the show because, as I said, you've got a lot of stuff going on. Uh, you've got various projects. Uh, I want to kind of take them in order then, starting off with uh, Throwback. Can you tell us a little bit about Throwback and what your plan is uh, for this season? Yeah, so it's uh, Throwback is a new podcast series from Sports Illustrated uh, where – I'm doing the first season, uh, which is on the first FIFA Women's World Cup in 1991, and and also on the U.S. national team, the women's national team that started in 85 and then went on to win that World Cup in 91. Um, and it's the first time I've ever hosted a podcast, like a storytelling podcast series, and I'm amazed by how different it is than sort of my weekly Planet Football podcast where I interview somebody, um, which I also enjoy. But it's it's really a, a process of not just doing all the interviews that we did um, with former U.S. women's players and even Seth Blatter for, uh, for this podcast series, but then all the script writing, all the the voiceover stuff. And it, it's been a really fun process. Um, and th- this you know, the subject matter has been a lot of fun uh, to talk to people like Michelle Akers and Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy about the early days of the U.S. women's national team. And and I'll be honest, I, I didn't know a lot of this stuff, mm-hmm. um, you know, about what happened in the mid to late 80s and early 90s. Yeah, actually, I, I want to let's let's go there then, because uh, we on this show got a lot of questions about why the U.S. women's team is so much better than the men's team. We tend to give a couple different answers, one of which is usually that like, the women were in a more advantageous position. They were kind of on the ground floor when the first World Cup came into existence. But based on what I've heard so far from the first two episodes, it sounds like that's really not quite fair, given where the team were, like, in terms of maybe in, the, like, the mid-'80s and where they were in the competitions there. 
Well, that's been really interesting to me because even soccer people say, well, one reason that the U.S. women's team has been so good uh, in winning World Cups from the start is they got a head start on the rest of the world. And that is simply not true. Yeah. Um, You know, um, you had when the first, you know, U.S. women's team came together in 1985 and they played in a tournament in Italy called the Mundialito. The, I think the quote from Michelle Akers was, we got our asses kicked. Um, <laughs> yes, it was. She's, she's wonderful, by the way. Um, <laughs> and the way she put it was they were just really naive that they did they hadn't played internationally before. And a lot of the players spent their tournament sort of complained to the referee about how that was a foul and not getting calls and just – you know, they played four games. Uh, they won none of them. They lost three of them. And they had a real sort of lesson in in the international game. And to hear people like Akers and Anson Dorrance, who came in the following year uh, as the U.S. women's coach, to hear them tell this story, they feel like, you know, conventional wisdom says we were born on the mountaintop and we weren't. And we actually had to get there. And so that was really interesting to me. And is is that then like what the kind of rest of the season is going to be? Is it leading up to 91? Or are you going to go back to 1999? Because you got to start with 99, you go back to 91, then you go further back uh, into the 80s. I don't want to give away too much, but I'm curious if that's sort of where you're expecting it to go. So, yeah, we, are, we literally today as we're recording this just recorded the final episode, episode oh, okay. five. Right. So, um, you know, the way it's structured is we wanted to – kind of start in at the very beginning of the first episode with 99, just to sort of remind people about that huge cultural moment, but then go back from there, you know, by having, uh, you know, players who were on the 99 team, several of them were on the 91 team and saying, you know, look, a lot of people think women's soccer started in 1999, but there was so much that happened before that. And, uh, that is our way to kind of get into this origin story of how uh, the U.S. women's national team got started, but also how the the first FIFA Women's World Cup got organized. And uh, so I love telling origin stories, especially ones that haven't really been told much before, because uh, there's so much interesting stuff there. Yeah. And and so the first episode gets into how the, the, the Women's World Cup and FI- by FIFA got started. And then the second episode is uh, sort of the early days of the U.S. Women's National Team. Third episode uh, gets into the 91 World Cup itself before the final. Fourth episode is mostly about the final in 91. And then the fifth episode gets into uh, more about post-91 the sort of labor struggles between the U.S. women's players and U.S. soccer uh, that has a through line to today, obviously, with the gender discrimination lawsuit filed a couple months ago by the U.S. women's players against U.S. soccer. And now having done all these interviews and, and really having told this story, I have a much better idea about what happened in the past that has set up this this current fight. 
Well, yeah, I kind of want to go there because uh, if you're talking gender discrimination in soccer, then you've got to be talking Sepp Blatter, uh, who <laughs> you talk, uh, who is in. I'm assuming that's kind of like archived uh, interview from like past interviews you've done with him that is featured in the first episode, or did you actually get him in that first episode? Oh no, we got Sepp Blatter oh, wow. uh, uh, specifically for this. <laughs> oh, uh, and and it was I, I've never interviewed Sepp Blatter before one on one. Uh, even when he was FIFA president for 17 years. And so I ended up having uh, over an hour on the phone with Seth Blatter uh, from Zurich. And um, it was it was fascinating. He acted like a guy who had time on his hands, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I guess he probably does. But that is... So upsetting then, because I really assumed that that was like from an interview you did, like when you ran for FIFA president or something, because it's still so like out of date, which is amazing. Not that gender discrimination is ever acceptable, but like it does feel like it came from like another era where it was like, ah, it was the 80s. He said stuff. Um, But yeah, I I actually wanted to talk about him a little bit more because... It, it's really strange to me. And by the way, you are doing a very good job with your, your narrator voice and the kind of uh, the narration <laughs> flow. Um, and, and especially so because I'm having a hard time really knowing how to feel about Set Bladder. And that's a strange feeling to be in because I was initially like, oh, of course he's going to claim credit for starting the first Women's World Cup. But then it seems like right. maybe he deserves a little bit of credit. So I'm wondering how much, like, I guess, responsibility we should give him for creating the first Women's World Cup or, I be- as I believe it was going to be known, the first FIFA World Championship for women's football for the M&M's Cup. I think I've got that written down properly. <laughs> that, is, that is correct. Goodness gracious. Um, I mean, Sepp Blatter, in terms of women's soccer, is a, is a pretty complex character. I mean, so much of how Blatter is viewed in the U.S. and in other countries, too, is... You know, he's like presided over this era of corruption, absolutely shady, got his comeuppance when he resigned in 2015. Um, And yet, in terms of how history should view Seth Blatter in in women's soccer, the more people I talk to, and that includes my friend Gene Williams, who's on the podcast, she's the leading historian uh, out there on women's soccer. She's from Britain. And I said to her, and to Julie Foudy, I was like, Sepp Blatter, friend or foe of women's soccer. And I thought it was interesting that Jean Williams actually thought about it, kind of giggled for a second, but then thought about it seriously. And she's like, I'd say friend. Wow. You know, her take is that, yes, Sepp Blatter said some pretty cringe-inducing things over the years about women's soccer, which I asked him about, mm-hmm. about, you know, would you like to take back that quote from 04 about how women should be playing in tighter shorts? And he, he just said no. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay. He, he went the fake um, news route is, is what it sounded like. He threw a little bit of yeah. like, well, that's not really what I said, even though that's definitely what I said. Yeah, exactly. Um, but all that said, uh, in relative terms, compared to the Ice Age viewpoints of the men in FIFA and running National Soccer Federations at the time in the mid-80s, that Sepp Blatter actually was slightly progressive in pure relative terms in pushing for the first women's world cup by FIFA to happen in 91. Um, that said, I asked him about all this stuff in the podcast, you know, the world volleyball championship for women, world basketball championship for women, that all those started in the 1950s. FIFA waited until 1991 to have their first women's world championship. And, and, 
Actually, Blatter had some introspection on that. He was like, if you want to, you can blame me. Uh, FIFA was asleep. So he, he does at least say a few things in this podcast that you're like, he's acknowledging that he could have done more and FIFA could have done more. But that's the other problem is Sepp Blatter's this huge disappointment for women's soccer in the sense that he was FIFA president for 17 years from 98 to 2015 and didn't do nearly enough to help grow the sport of women's soccer around the world and and really invest in that and encourage national federations and require national federations to do so. But there were uh, some uh, members of like the soccer community who did. Uh, one who I didn't know anything about until that first episode is, I believe she's dubbed like, the Norwegian, uh, the Norwegian mother of women's soccer, or the mother yes. of Norwegian soccer. Uh, I really enjoyed that it sounded like she made Jao Havalange sound like a six-year-old and blame it on his friend, like it was Sepp's fault. Uh, like, how much did you know about her going in? Forgive me, I don't even have her name written down, so I'm not doing a very good job of like honoring her. But uh, yeah, can you tell us a bit about the Norwegian mother of soccer? Yeah, her name's Ellen Wheeler, and in 1986 at the FIFA conference or FIFA Congress in Mexico City, which was taking place around that World Cup, uh, she became the first woman ever to address the FIFA Congress. And uh, Joao Havelange was the FIFA president at the time. Blatter was his number two, his general secretary. And Havelange was reading the annual report about what FIFA had done over the previous year. And to hear Ellen talk about it to us, she was like really upset that there was only one paragraph devoted to women's soccer in that annual report. And so when Havelange asked for any comments from the gallery, from all the attendees at the FIFA Congress, Ellen Wheeler addresses the entire FIFA Congress, all men, and says... This is unacceptable. Your report here, what you, you know, little of it there is about women's soccer. And she spends 10 minutes telling them that, look, you guys, FIFA, need to create a FIFA Women's World Cup. And also, women's soccer needs to get into the Olympics. This sport needs support. And Havelange's response was, I didn't write the report. You know, Seth Blatter <laughs> wrote the report. Apparently said in uh, Portuguese courageous. or French or something. Yeah. And so Bladder is put on the spot. And everyone actually agrees on this story. Even you know, Bladder and Ellen Wheeler all agree on what happened. So Bladder responds to Ellen Wheeler in front of the entire FIFA Congress. Uh, Madame, uh, yes, you will, we, we will do a FIFA Women's World Cup. And, and Bladder, to his credit, because if you like, obviously that's the right response. But in that particular setting, it wasn't necessarily going to be the response that Bladder or someone in his mm -hmm. position might have given. Yeah, and, I, was, I was really surprised when it sort of was like that sudden of a change. Right. And so that was in 86. And so, you know, it, it does take a, a, a while to organize uh, a World Cup for the first time. And so uh, Bladder and FIFA organize a dress rehearsal Women's World Cup in China in 1988 uh, that the U.S. takes part in. And by the way, that U.S. team went out in the quarterfinals to Norway and, and wasn't very good in that tournament, sort of supporting the idea that they weren't great from the start. Um, and then three years later in 91, they have the the M&M's Cup. They didn't 
want to actually give it the term World Cup, Women's World Cup, because they were afraid it wouldn't be a success. It's just so FIFA. It's very FIFA, yeah. And so retroactively, later, once it was a success in terms of crowd support, um, they went back and and FIFA called it the first Women's World Cup and 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 decided to continue doing the Women's World Cup because that wasn't a sure thing. I'm sure that when they make their follow-up to the movie they made about themselves, FIFA will portray themselves <laughs> as like always knowing that it was going to succeed. But uh, I'll, stay, I'll stick with throwback until then. Uh, yeah, so we're, what, two episodes in, third one out today? So uh, the third episode comes out on Thursday. Ah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, it's at, yeah, they drop every Thursday through, I think it's June 6th. Hey, everybody, much more still to come, but I wanted to take a break because, you know, doing the interviewing can be a little bit, you know, time consuming. It can require some emotional, like, focus. And I want to back away and instead just be completely emotionally unfocused because I want to talk to Daryl Grove. Hi, Daryl. Hey, I've never <laughs> thought of you as emotionally unfocused. More, more so, just, you know, like, I can, uh, I can, uh, you know, I'm not behind the wheel as much when Daryl Grove is involved. I'll put it that way. Oh, I see. Is that a polite way of saying I talk too much? No, not at all. It's quite the opposite. <laughs> it's more so that Daryl Grove does the driving and I can just pop in whenever I want to. <laughs> Ironically, that's the only time I do the driving. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> this is very true. This is very true. But you're here with me to answer one listener question and also talk about uh, some sponsors. Let's get to that then. Should we talk about some grip, grip six belts? Are you wearing one right now? You tend to be wearing one. Of course I am. I did, um, I did bring my shorts to England uh-huh. thinking it would be nice and warm. How'd that work I out? was wrong. I ended up wearing jeans. I ended up wearing a grip six belt around my jeans. I do. Uh, there's a weird like – I wouldn't say I have like pride in the state of Virginia. There are many, many reasons not to uh, have pride in the state of Virginia, uh, both past and present. But I will say that like there are moments when you go back home and you come back and I just see you enjoy – being in Richmond, oh. mostly because it's not 12 degrees outside. That makes and me very happy. the food has flavors. Also, the food has flavors. And people say hello on the street. It's amazing. <laughs> There's no hellos on the street. I just assumed it was all very like Mary oh. Poppins, everybody doffing caps and whatnot. Oh, I, I'm going around saying hello on the street and people look really scared. Like that's <laughs> People don't expect it. I, 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 I see and I'm familiar because I remember living in uh, Northern Virginia and walking the dog. The dogs get smiles. The humans don't. There will be no <laughs> smiles back and forth amongst humans, but I will smile at your dog. I will extend you that courtesy. <laughs> should we get back to grip six? Pounds? I suppose we should. Uh, <laughs> so you you brought the belt to wear with shorts, but now you're wearing it with pants. Is that yes, just I am because it? it keep my pants up. And when I got home, my, my dad was wearing the grip six belt that I got him with the Total Soccer Show logo on it. Uh, really, he was. Yeah, that makes me really whole happy. Grove family grip six belts night out. We had. Did he understand what it was and where it came from? Yes, I mean at the time, yeah. Okay, because I um, I explained it to him and um he people seem slightly uh, when they see the way the grip six belt uh works you know the gripping mechanism mm-hmm. i think some people are slightly confused about it um my, my dad is confused about lots of things sometimes <laughs> uh, like sometimes he picks up the remote control to answer the phone uh, but <laughs> but he figured out the grip six belt really easily because it's kind of intuitive um how it works once you're wearing it I mean, yeah, yeah, I think that's that's definitely one of the strongest features. And the other one is just kind of not having to deal with like the holes and the adjustments and all that good stuff yeah. because no there are no holes. Flaps. There's no flap hanging out. You, you slide it into the buckle. You go until it's secure. It holds that way all day because of badger teeth, as we've talked about before. Uh-huh. But it's it's like very strong, uh, lightweight, aircraft-grade aluminum is the buckle. So it doesn't kind of sit. You don't get that like kind of blocky feeling sometimes when you're sitting down that you do with other belts. Um, yep. And it's nice and lightweight. I'm wearing mine right now uh, with my shorts because it is about 90 degrees here in richmond the ac is uh on full ma- full throttle 
Yay! Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so uh, the other great thing about Grip 6 uh, is that it can be returned for a full refund plus shipping at any time under any condition uh, for any reason. Uh, they're the only company that offers such a warranty for belts, uh, and it's very much appreciated because if you're going to... You know why they do it? Why is that? They do it because they know you won't want to send it back because it's too good. You don't mm-hmm. want to give it up once you've got it. This and because true. it's so well made, they know it's not going to break down. Yeah, yeah, and I really appreciate that, but I also appreciate that, like, with any sort of new product or different product, and I would say the Grip 6 belt is a different type of product, that yeah. there is that hesitance of like, ah, but like, is it going to work or is it going to be one of those things where it looks really cool and then you kind of immediately become familiar with why it doesn't work as well, but now you're pot committed with the kind of guarantee that you can send it back. You can take that risk and then if you don't like it, you'll like it. But if you don't, then you can send it back, but more likely if you like it, then you can keep it and go buy some more. Yeah. And if you don't like it, you're wrong. Um, exactly. You can also get the total soccer show there listener discount if you go to grip6.com slash TSS. That's G-R-I-P, the number six, dot com. You've seen that before. Slash TSS. And there's a special landing page just for total soccer show listeners um, with the discounts that you can get as a TSS listener. I guess you can share it with other people who don't listen to the show. That still works, but they'll be confused about all the total soccer show stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that makes sense to me. So that, that code one more time was what, Daryl? Grip6.com slash TSS is the URL to go to. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much to Grip6 for sponsoring today's episode. Thank you very much to Jesse Frankel for sending in a question for us to answer. Uh, yeah. Jesse asks, over the last 25 years, going back to the 94 World Cup, what former USMNT-er uh, would have made the largest impact for the national team program had they reached their realistic peak? That could be a career cut short by injuries like Stu Holden or Charlie Davies or someone who just didn't quite pan out, say, for example, Freddie Adu. Do you want me to answer first? Sure. I think it's actually, you'll have to permit me sort of two answers, but they're connected. It's a combination of John O'Brien and Stu Holden. Okay. Because I also think Stu Holden would have been the successor to John O'Brien because they're somewhat similar in that they could, they were like number eights who could go both ways, right? They Mm. could do a defensive job and they could also do a creative job and they would get up and down the field and they were sort of high quality players john o'brien if everyone remembers from 2002 was the number eight that sort of made everything tick in that midfield right he was the link between the defensive midfielder um and like say claudio reyna as the attacking midfielder he was playing for ajax at the time which was incredible um and then essentially he just got a series of injuries and things broke down and he really tried right he really tried to keep playing arena even brought him back for the 2006 world cup but it's really obvious that he just couldn't do it anymore and soon after um he was retired Mm -hmm. Um, and then Stu Holden similarly has that sort of defensive presence, attacking presence, box to box. That's the player that I remember. Um, he was just establishing himself in the Premier League right, in like 2011 when he had that horrible tackle from, I believe, Johnny Evans uh, that took out Holden's knee. And Holden, he came back a couple of times, but essentially never recovered. Holden would have been Michael Bradley's midfield partner. And I think it really, really would have worked over that next decade or so. I think he's only... Um, actually, look this up. Holden's 33 right yeah. now. He would just still be, just be coming, just be slowing down now, coming towards the end of his career. So all these problems we've had in the past, like with people complaining about Michael Bradley or like the Bradley-Jones partnership doesn't work, or Bradley needed a partner when we played against Trinidad and instead of like having him sit there on his own in that whole uh, Bruce Arena period, Stu Holden could have been that guy for years and years and years. So I think actually my answer is Stu Holden, but with the sort of, backup of saying if we'd also had John O'Brien then we would have had this weird like continuity of a really high quality number eight for like two decades here's the thing 
Even though Daryl Grove and I uh, are continents apart, we still somehow spend too much time together because I have three names written <laughs> down. Two of them are joined. They're John O'Brien and Stu Holden are the two that are and joined. And you've joined them up as well? I have indeed uh, be- <laughs> for the exact reasons that you have um, because <laughs> – like I just because of everything you've said is accurate. The one thing I would add to it is just that like I, th- I, I thought you were surprisingly quiet when I was giving my answer. That just yeah. meant you you're just sitting there nodding. I was right? just nodding. Yeah. If you go back and listen, there's one where I'm like, yep. <laughs> like um, it's because like I just want to emphasize that like they were two guys who who were who were doing it. Like you go back to John yeah. O'Brien. Like I remember because this was not 2002 era Taylor there were probably people out there who were but I like I didn't know that squad until it was announced probably until their first game I didn't really know who was going to be playing for the US and suddenly here's this guy John O'Brien who then I read more about I'm like wait what he's playing for Ajax like that's amazing I know who Ajax are they're incredible how's he doing that and like it's suddenly this American who's doing this thing at this big name club and I would extend that to Stu Bolton like I remember he was their player of the year he was he was this player who was kind of running that midfield at a time where Bolton didn't have the financial difficulties or not to the extent they do now, Bolton were Bolton. And it was really exciting that there was this American coming through who felt like he was going to be the engine for that team. Yep. And that's they what both of them felt like. seventh in the Premier League that season. Exactly. Seventh in the Premier League. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think for me... They were the Wolves of 2011. <laughs> I don't know why I find that so funny, but I do. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I think for everything you said, but just plus that little factor of like, these are two guys who it felt like, wow, there are some Americans who can be that kind of standard bearer. It is what kind of like what, what Christian Pulisic and Weston McKinney and Tyler Adams are now of like players who are doing it abroad, who can show young Americans like, yeah, this is possible. And you can play for a big club and have success. They were doing it back in 2002 and 2006. And I think if they kind of reached that full peak and avoided some of the injuries, they move to an even higher level than I think where we saw them, where we remember them. I also want to address Charlie Davies, that who sure. Jesse mentions. Um, I think there's a strong argument that Charlie Davies would have had a huge impact at the 2010 World Cup. I agree. Because Bob Bradley had built that team, right? The 2009 team. Uh, like people call it like Bunker Bob and all that. Is like re- I think is really um, the wrong way of thinking about it. It was an excellent counter-attacking team where he did have Bradley and a defensive midfielder alongside him. Um, and then Donovan and Dempsey on the wings ready for a counter-attack. And Josie... And a really fast Charlie Davies next to him. And it was deadly on the counterattack. We nearly won the Confederations Cup, right? Mm-hmm. We beat Spain. We were a goal up on Brazil. Um, and it was based on Davies having that counterattacking speed. And then obviously there was the car crash. Uh, we all know that story. It would have been great to take Altador and that version of Charlie Davies to the 2010 World Cup. And instead we took essentially, was it Robbie Findlay as a sort yep. of uh, best next best thing to Davies, like essentially get a fast striker. Yep. And it just wasn't quite the same. I feel like maybe long term it's not wasn't a recipe for massive success because I'm not really sure what Charlie Davies' ceiling was. Uh, but I feel at least the pace and the familiarity and the relationship between Altador and Davies would have been effective for at least a couple of years, but maybe not in the sort of decade-long way that I, saw, I would see Stu Holden having an impact. Yeah, uh, yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, and then I feel like that's kind of like a what if, and I sort of have a what if as well, because it's it's a player who did go on to have a successful career with the national team. You know his name, but I do think that one injury does sort of change it a little bit, it's Jermaine Jones. Because, Mm. we forget, first became eligible to play for the U.S. national team in October of 2009. Could easily have been on that World Cup, that uh, 2010 World Cup squad, but the injury, the prolonged injury, keeps him out. He doesn't end up going. And if you remember back, like, remember how we kept conceding early, and there was the Ricardo Clark, Maurice Adu conundrum of, like, who do we play in the midfield, and why isn't it working? And even some of the soccer that we played in 2010 was not particularly compelling. Um, And I do wonder if, if you have Jermaine 
Jones there, do you have that sort of dynamism that we've come to expect from him at that level, at that time? Is he driving that midfield? Does he kind of knock everything together? Is it a stronger World Cup uh, like result as a result? Um, and I think, and I also the, then look at his club career. Jermaine Jones? Yeah, and this is when, because of that injury, this is when you see him kind of leave Schalke. He goes on loan to Blackburn. It doesn't quite work. He goes on loan to uh, uh, Besiktas. It doesn't quite work. He ends up moving back to MLS a couple years later. And I do wonder if he doesn't have this injury and this downturn in form at that time, does he kind of stay with Schalke or does he get another move because it felt like maybe Germany was done for him, but he moves to a place that fits a little bit better. He kind of continues to play at a higher level. I don't think he has any regrets about necessarily about where his career has gone. But I think it's strange to look back and only have Jermaine Jones play in one World Cup for the national team because of what happened in 2018. So the idea yeah. of getting him in there in 2010, I do think it changes his narrative just a little bit. Wasn't he still in Europe in 2014, though? I don't remember him being an MLS player because I remember him joining MLS after sort of his fame at the 2014 World Cup because that like maximized his MLS market value. So he still had a couple years at Schalke after uh, that, right? Uh, yeah, I think he leaves Schalke in 2014. I think that's when 2014 is when he's at Besiktas. He had definitely not come back yet because oh, that was when we I were see. having our conversations about Bradley coming back, I think, was Got before it. that World Cup. Got it. Okay. Um, God, I nearly did another Jack Grealish mistake. Um, <laughs> why, why didn't either of us go with um, Jesse's sort of the suggestion of someone who didn't pan out, with maybe Freddie Adu being the uh, example of a youth player we talked up or was talked up and then didn't pan out? All right, I think I'm going to go like full Chuck Klosterman here. And I'm going to say, mm-hmm. because I think we needed a player like Freddie Adu, like we needed, like that's a name that even if you're just sort of getting into soccer, you probably, but if you're like of a certain age, you probably know Freddie Adu. My wife knows who Freddie Adu is. Yeah, She'll yeah. ask a me bunch, why. A I was bunch of the... people over here know Freddie Adu. Exactly. Now. And I think we know that because he was the next big thing. He's the new Pele. He's in Sierra Mist commercials with Pele. That's weird. Um, and like, and now to know where it's gone, like it, it is a sort of cautionary tale that you kind of need, <laughs> that you kind of need to, to then when Timothy Weah comes through or when Julian Green comes through or any, any other young, exciting player, like you can sort of look at it as like, yeah, but let's hold off and see. I honestly like oh. I thought about Freddie Adu uh, when we talked about Tyler Boyd of like, is this a player who now that he can play for the national team, we're just all super hyped about him because he plays in Europe and he scores goals. And well, actually, I guess kind of plays in Asia if you want to go that route because Ankara Gaju, nerd. Uh, but it like it like you need a player like Freddie Adu, I think, to kind of remind you like, hey, don't get blown away by things just because he's young and exciting, see what he can actually offer. So I guess that's part of my answer. Forgive me for going long because the other aspect of it is just that like, but I also think that we kind of knew what Freddie Adu's ceiling was. I think we know it now. I don't, I feel like he kind of, yeah, it, it's just that going back and watching and, and kind of knowing what we know now and knowing what we've heard in the years since about how he's kind of a flair player who necessarily didn't necessarily want to learn the tactics, didn't necessarily want to improve that part of his game. Like, I think it's kind of inevitable. And so I guess for me, he's not a player who kind of didn't pan out. It's just a player that in the end yeah. didn't go where we thought it would. Yeah, I, I, so and there it, is a distinction there. I'm not sure why I think there's a distinction, but there no, is I get in my it. mind. Well, I think because when there's an injury, there's a thing you can point to that was like, okay, yeah. his career took a bad turn at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Freddie Adu, I think essentially it's not his fault, right? Like he maybe he was always going to be the player, the player with the career he sat, he's had, right? Which mm-hmm. is kind of nomadic because he's got flashes of skill, but maybe doesn't fit in tactically places, right? And he has a wonderful left foot, but yeah, again, doesn't fit in tactically. So he's not a player that people value long term because eventually a coach is not going to be happy with uh, a player like that. 
Um, and the, the only the only sort of crime here is not Freddie Adu's crime of being hyped. It's the fact that essentially MLS needed a face. So MLS exactly. hyped this 14-year-old kid. Yeah. So 13, 14 when they started talking about him. I mean, in hindsight, it was – I mean, it's almost abusive to like put that much attention – on a kid when you don't really know what type of player he's going to be and you're hyping him as like literally the next, the, the American Pele, um, it's really unfair to him. Yeah. It's absolutely unfair. So yeah, Freddie Adu, I think was always going to be Freddie Adu and we, it's our expectations were too high, not Freddie Adu's thank expectations. Thank, that's, yes, that's what I was trying to get at. You said it much better than I ever could. So thank you for that, Daryl Grove. Hopefully you can do the same thing unless you have more uh, players who didn't work out uh, to talk about. No, not really, because I think anyone that any youth player that you talk about that quote didn't work out, mm-hmm. it's like they, I mean that's how they were going to be, right? So the, the it's like it's like the Adu situation, but to a less extreme extent. When you talk someone up when they're young, and then you imagine that they're going to win the Ballon d'Or, then it's you that's made a mistake, right? It's not that the player got injured or something. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's that's totally fair. So in the end, yeah. are we going to say I think I'll go Stu Holden, and then John O'Brien, and then Jermaine Jones as my my list of three. All right, I'll go Holden with like a parenthesis of like an also John O'Brien. <laughs> yeah. Um, with Charlie Davies short term for Charlie Davies for the 2010 World Cup. All right. All right. I, I can get behind that. But if a player does reach uh, his or her full potential, they do become a global superstar. Maybe today's sponsor will let you know that because maybe you can get a scarf of that player or their name on it by going to roughneckscarves.com. Uh, they have many scarves because they are the official scarf providers of U.S. soccer, of Major League Soccer, of the USL and of the NCAA. And they have, I know you mentioned it on a last week's ad, Taylor, but I think it's really worth uh, letting people know about the U.S. Women's National Team mm-hmm. collection. Endless U.S. Women's National Team scarves with some big name players with their name are in big letters on a scarf, on a normal size scarf. Uh, I'm going to take a controversial <laughs> approach to this by saying one name that's not there that, hey, Roughneck Scarves, get that name there. Rose Lavelle. I need a Rose Lavelle scarf. Mm. I need that in my life because I am fully on board the Rose Lavelle hype train. I think I've been on it for like a couple years now. So yeah. I, I need did, a Rose Lavelle scarf to you, scale that talk off. you into it as well? I enjoyed the Caitlin Murray interview. I think she made the really good point about our creativity through the middle is Rose Lavelle. That's why she's super important. I mean, yes. That, that certainly did, did not hurt my estimations of Rose Lavelle. Caitlin, Caitlin, as usual, did do a good job of kind of helping me calm down a little bit. I appreciate that she shared my <laughs> concerns about some of the issues and some of the decisions Jill Ellis has made. But yes, yeah. overall, uh, she made me feel better and definitely made me feel better about uh, all of the hype I have thrown Rose Lavelle's way. Did you feel weirdly validated when Caitlin said, I listened to your show? First of all, I was like, oh, Caitlin listened to our show. <laughs> <I know>. um, <laughs> yes, that's and, where I felt strangely she, validated. Yeah, and this is she mostly agreed with stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I also heard the part where you tried to blame me for your bad opinions. So. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, that, I don't know, think that I've happened. Got, I've got my ear on you. <laughs> I forgot that I literally did that. <laughs> yeah, anyway, uh, so hopefully Roughneck Scarves gets the Rose Lavelle scarf. But if they don't, if they don't have time, you, as you said, you can get many different uh, scarves to represent the U.S. women's, yeah. te- women's team, both individual players and the team as a whole. Yeah, and you can use like if you get the Juliet scarf, you can like tackle people with it, like of course. just wrap it around their legs. If you get the Tobin Heath scarf, you can sort of use it to um, to dribble through crowds. There's a, there's all kinds of good uses for these scarves. Yes, it, it it throws itself between your opponent's legs. That's that's what the Tobin Heath <laughs> scarf does. Yeah, you can just like pull it through. And yeah, exactly. Shout, scarf, scarf Meg. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> But as I said, you can also represent uh, uh, MLS teams, USL sides, uh, your colleges as we get ready. I feel like people are permanently getting ready for the start of college football season, regardless of whether or not it's in season or like months away. But if you have, yeah. maybe you've uh, decided which university you're going to attend, you're a graduating uh, senior in high school, then maybe you want to get a Roughneck Scarf to celebrate that decision. 
And if you want 20% off when you go to roughneckscarves.com, use the discount code TOTALSOCCERSHOW. All one word, TOTALSOCCERSHOW, gets you 20% off at roughneckscarves.com. Thank you very much to Roughneck Scarves for sponsoring today's episode. Thank you very much to Daryl Grove for taking the intellectual wheel uh, so yeah. that you know I could just zone out for a while. Have your emotions had a rest? Yeah, they have. They have. Now I can get All back right. uh, to the interview. But Daryl Grove, thank you very much. We look forward to having you back in studio uh, if and when you return from your far-off mystical land of England. I'll be back. I'll be back. There we are. All right. So uh, – Definitely check that out. I've enjoyed it. It's It's been uh, way better than the FIFA movie, but that's not a very high <laughs> bar. Uh, I did also want to talk to you about uh, the book Ma- uh, Masters of Modern Soccer. I think the paperback just came out or just became available in paperback uh, because you have a chapter focused on Vincent Company. Uh, he mm-hmm. has uh, obviously uh, in recent news departed Manchester City to be player coach at Anderlecht. Uh, I'm assuming he's going to end up doing more coaching than playing, but I'm wondering from your time with him, what are your expectations for him as a manager? You never know for sure, right? <laughs> but I mean, I would have to think that Vincent Company has the ingredients to be a successful manager. Um, just having the the honor, to be honest, to like spend a lot of time with him talking soccer, talking the game itself uh, for my book was just really, really amazing. Um, he's... He's a, a thoughtful guy, a smart guy, but part of that is also him allowing that his his uh, his thoughts on the game of soccer have changed over the years. And he's like, "Look, if I had the same viewpoints on the sport and the finer points of it that I had when I was twenty years old as I do now in my thirties, that would be a problem." But Actually, there's a lot of people out there, including ex-players, who have had the same thoughts about the sport for for that long. Um, you know, to talk to a company about how much he learned in his 30s under Pep Guardiola, um, and get into specifics with him for the book was just really interesting. A lot of it about uh, very fine points of positional play, um, and just how Guardiola had caused him to look at the game and, and company who has a sense of humor saying, you know, I was injured a lot too. So that gave me more time to look at it from that perspective. Um, you know, I, I think company could be a good manager. I, I'm also excited to have a player manager again. How many of we, how many of those have we seen since what Rude Hullet and Walter Zenga with the new England revolution? There have, uh, there have not been many. There have not been many. That's for sure. And we had Drogba, the owner manager or the owner player. I think that was, that was a rare one as well. But um, I am, am pretty excited about what Vincent Company could do, and I and I, I, I'm not that surprised. I guess I, I was slightly surprised that he didn't do a, a one year extension mm-hmm. with City, especially considering the way he finished the season. But uh, yeah, that's pretty smart of him as well to go out on that note, scoring such an important goal. And I think people are going to you know connected to City are going to view Company more now for his finish than for the injuries over the last few years. Uh, speaking of that goal, I wanted to like highlight that moment because he does have a lot of like moments where he's talking about defending and the art of defending and how it's always been kind of the thing that motivates him. But he also talks about when he goes forward and basically at City have so many attacking options. But there are moments when he does decide he's going to get involved. And he basically says like it's all about belief that if he goes forward – 
he backs himself to score. That he, if I'm going forward, then I'm going to score a goal. And I thought about that when he scored that goal for Leicester because it really was just like, all right, I'm going to go do this. And I did wonder, like, if did you remember that in that moment that he has that quote in your book that like basically perfectly perfectly explains what's happening oh, yeah. in that moment? And were you like yeah. celebrating? Like, haha, I knew. Uh, I, I might have even done a victory there tweet with like a. a uh, you know, a screenshot from that <laughs> quote. Like the thing about it though is even when we were talking about that, when he would go upfield, most of the time it would be in the context of a set piece. Mm-hmm. But he did talk about going on sort of sixty yard runs with the ball upfield, which he and I had talked about when we watched a lot of video together and would see him do that from time to time. And he actually uses the term going anderlecht, you know, which is where he started out and where they they taught him to be uh, a ball-playing uh, defender uh, who had skills uh, at the attacking end. And so even for company, I, I, there have been some moments over the years, if you remember at the crazy end in, in the, the final game of the 2012 season yeah. when they, you know, Aguero's goal, uh, company's like in the box, <laughs> like he's up front. Um, so he did do that from time to time. But I think even for company, it was unusual. I think that was the first time in, at least in the Premier League, that he had ever scored a goal from outside the box. There you go. And he claims, I think, in the one you're talking about from 2012, doesn't he claim that his dummy or like his nutmeg was the thing that started it all? <laughs> he had a half smile, but I think he was half serious. All right. <laughs> that checks out. And also, yeah, I'm a Manchester United fan. So, yes, I remember that game vividly. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, you also said uh, in that chapter that you uh, looked forward to speaking to Vincent Company and to Chabi Alonso, which in my mind indicates that they, there were maybe some interviewees that you did not look forward to. Oh, no, don't take it that okay. way. Right. Um, no, I, I just, you know, for me, like to have this much time for this book over a, a couple years period over multiple interviews where we were just talking about the specifics of the the sport itself. You know, we weren't talking about like I wasn't talking with Chicharito about his girlfriend or anything mm-hmm. like that. And it just was as I was doing all those interviews, it reminded me how silly it is, how rarely we actually talk to players about what they're experts in, which is the game itself and really digging in. And, and, you know, part of that's because we don't always get enough access and time to do that, but uh, to watch video of the players themselves and, and be talking to them about what was going on in their heads. Why were you, you know, what were you doing here? What were you considering? And even Christian Pulisic, uh, and we did most of the interviews for it in 2017. So he was still very much a teenager, but he was engaged and really thoughtful about the sport itself. And you really came away with a sense that, you know, if someday a long time from now, if Christian Pulisic wants to you know, work in TV and talk about the sport, he's got the ability to to break it down like that in an interesting way. And I don't think it's a coincidence that companies done TV work that other people in this book could do TV work, you know, whether it's oh, Roberto Martinez has, obviously. Um, but uh, I did learn a lot about the craft of the sport position by position from the guys I spoke to. 
pretty pretty good way to learn. Uh, I also kind of forgot that you talked to Christian Pulisic in that book uh, because <laughs> I, I guess I'm wondering because you speak to him, uh, and I, do, I wanted to ask you about exploring planet football as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you speak to him in in that new series. How different ha- is he from when you first met him when you first interviewed him, uh, or has he been pretty kind of consistent all the way through? You know, I, what I would say about Pulisic is is that like a lot of athletes, he can turn it on and turn it off um, in interviews. And I, in like like a lot of athletes, he tends to go onto autopilot when it's a group interview, <laughs> like in a in a in a post game situation, and then it becomes. Uh, not always the most interesting discussion. Yeah, we just wanted to, you know, uh, make sure we were the better team today and uh, score some goals. And at the end of the day, a win's a win, and three points is all that matters. Yeah, you get those type exactly. of like very straightforward answers. Yeah, and you know, the longer he's been a pro, I think the the more that maybe he's gotten into that from a you know a group interview setting. Um, but in terms of one on one interviews, uh, I've had the fortune of you know really enjoying uh a lot of those with christian over the years and um you know the interviews that we did for the book project were very soccer specific like what is happening specifically on the field and he was great at that uh for exploring planet football which is our our video series on sitv uh we just had a new episode come out on u.s men's national team players in germany we did a road trip uh, around the country, and we sat down with Pulisic, McKenney, Tyler Adams, Chris Richards, Jesse Marsh. It was really fun, um, and that those interviews we wanted to get the players, including Christian, sort of away from their club setting. And so we went to the restaurant in Dortmund where he actually signed his first contract. Oh wow! Uh, and celebrated that as a fifteen-year-old, and. It seemed like a little bit like we were coming full circle in a sense because, uh, yeah, we when we recorded it, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, we already knew that he was going to be going to Chelsea, that he was winding down his time in Germany. And so he was in a reflective mood about looking back on his experience in Germany and the details of what that was like coming over and how hard it was. So it was less a discussion of what was happening on the field than it was about his life over there in this chapter of his life that was closing. Um, and, you know, you could tell that it's it's a, a really meaningful thing to him. It His experience in Germany totally changed his life. And, um, and so it, it's, I've been doing this for 23 years now at Sports Illustrated. So it's interesting over the years to see how the people you cover change. And if you cover someone, do interviews with them when they were 17, they're, they're not going to be the same at 20. They're not going to be the same at 28 or 35. And uh, so I, I think the same will be the case you know, with Pulisic. Is, is that strange for you as the interviewer or for you who you've been doing this as long as you have? Like, is it almost like he didn't used to answer my questions like that? Like, do you, <laughs> do you, take, like, do you take it that personally or are you just sort of like, huh, all right, well, he's in a different mindset right now? I mean, like to to Christian's credit, whenever we've done a one on one interview, I think he's been engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, and as he's gotten older, I think he's uh, gotten more relaxed, you know, and that's just natural. Um, and I don't take it personally if we're doing a, a group interview or something, and he's not saying a heck of a lot, um, you know, because like I said, that's 
99% of athletes. Um, but I would say that like my experience on this trip through Germany in this half hour show is not only should us fans be excited about these 20 year olds, Polisic, Tyler Adams, Weston McKenney in particular, um, because they're just really good players and very promising to potentially become real stars. Uh, but they're also really good interviews mm-hmm. yeah. and they're, they're thoughtful, smart guys. And maybe that's something that you and me in the media appreciate more than other people. But I think everyone has to some extent wants to get to know these guys as human beings and get a sense of what they think about the world. And it is kind of, I think it's, easier to root for somebody if you're a fan, if you're like, you know, I think that guy's really thoughtful. I think Tyler Adams is, you know, has a lot of interesting things to say and and is, you know, probably going to be a future captain of the national team. Yeah, I, I got that from him. I got that from McKinney as well. Uh, I was actually going to ask you which of them you think is more likely to be a captain, but instead I wanted to ask you actually about <laughs> your approach to it because um, I... I definitely like. I, I found myself uh, um, like with doing more interviews, like watching more people do interviews because there are things that I like about the way I ask questions, or the questions I ask, and things I don't love as much. <laughs> you like you found you seem to have found a way, especially in the McKinney interview, the one that stood out to me there was that like you ask tough questions and you kind of leave it to them to answer them however they want to. And so like the one that stood out to me was like I think at least in the video, the first question you ask him is about like why do you think. There are more Americans. Like, why has the Bundesliga supplanted the Premier League in terms of where young Americans want to be? And I was sort of like, wow, that's a that's a like that's a question I would like do a bunch of research on and really think about. And he pauses for like a couple seconds and kind of scratches his head, and then basically gives a perfect answer. And I was just sort of like blown away how like I guess I think because they're twenty, because they're young, I would feel this inclination to sort of like give them a crutch. Like, do you think it's because of this? Do you think it's because of this? And sort of like help them out. And I really appreciated how you just kind of floated the question and sat back and like do with it what you will. And he. <laughs> Gave an amazing answer. We, we threw McKinney in the deep end. Yeah, uh, definitely. And, and he did great. You know, I mean, it, it's, I mean, obviously, if um, he had given a not very useful well, answer, that, we probably yeah. wouldn't have included it. But, <laughs> the beauty of editing, but, yeah. But yeah, and I like it's, it's an interesting process, interviews, and, and I, you're never going to get an interview 100% right, but. I I try to approach them uh, by I would prefer not to to give them potential answers I, and, and treat them as a, a full fledged adult and and see where it takes you and uh, you know McKenney's a guy who also is clearly very comfortable in his own skin and we had spent a fair amount of time already that day and it wasn't our first interview um, but just a guy who's uh, you know, who thinks about stuff. Um, you know, it, it, what stood out to me also though, is he's not, he's not a soccer obsessive in the way that Tyler Adams is. Cause when we were with, we spent an afternoon with Tyler Adams and Jesse Marsh and they were checking that day's, it was a Saturday and I think Leipzig had a, a rare Monday night game. So they were checking Bundesliga scores the entire time. I mean, and, yeah, that that that's probably what it takes. And well, there are other ways. I mean, basically, Weston McKenney plays a lot of Fortnite, and 
I don't think he's checking too many scores on game day. <laughs> and it works okay for him. You know, I, I will admit, like over the years, that I would get frustrated at times, even seeing young US players on Twitter, if there was like a big game going on, like posting a picture of themselves, like at the beach or something. Mm-hmm. But you know, not all of these guys are are soccer obsessives and and McKenney makes it work for him. Now, Polisic's another guy who watches a lot of soccer. Um, so there's different ways, I guess, of going about things. Uh, Polisic uh, watches a lot of soccer is not, I guess, the master of ordering. I did want to ask, does he ever get the food he ordered or did that not work out? It, that's right. Uh, he orders uh, a very specific sort of off-menu yeah, item did. that one of his uh, teammates at, at Dortmund had suggested and the waiter at first was a little like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> and so, uh, yes, uh, Christian did okay. eat lunch that day. I'm sorry we didn't have the uh, the answer in the video. <laughs> I like I made a I made made sure to watch like all the way through just in case because like I really want to know if he if he actually pulled it off. He was able to order if the kitchen knew what he was asking for. So I'm glad that that worked out for him. Um, but I also moving away from what they ate and what they drank. Uh, yeah, the Tyler Adams bit bit that I thought was really good. Again, I don't want to give away like too much of it because I would. Encourage encourage people to go watch. Um, but I liked the point about like kind of his enthusiasm. And I feel like y'all got a few good shots of that from him in training. And it seems like, cause I've wondered what it was that maybe made him gel with that squad so quickly. You ask him about kind of is like, does having Jesse Marsh there help? And I'm, I'm assuming it does, but it did feel to me like the kind of enthusiasm and energy he appears to have brought to training. Like you could just see him like motivating everybody. He's turning stuff into like competitions and they're all kind of getting into it. And to me, it felt like that's kind of what he brings to the table. That's what makes him so good. Is that a thing that you saw as well? Yeah. And that's something that Jesse Marsh was saying was that like Tyler's arrival in January was a really pleasant, positive energy injection into that team. Not that it was struggling because Leipzig had a good season, but it helped that Adams came in ready to play fit and showed in training from the very start that he was not going to need some adjustment period. And that's why he was able to get a spot in the starting lineup so quickly. And Marsh was like, none of the players objected. You know, it was just like, yeah, this this kid can play and he's he's good for us. Um, it was interesting also, too, just going to a, a training session at Leipzig, and this was in February, so you're quite a ways into the season, and comparing that Leipzig training session mood to the one at Schalke, and Schalke was about to fire their coach. Yeah. They were near the bottom of the Bundesliga, and these were their training session was open to the public and a lot of those folks looked pissed off. Like they were like not like happy about things at all at that training session. And, um, and the training session, when you watched it, uh, McKenney was actually injured that day. So he was trained to the side, but the players at the Schalke training session just it was like night and day compared to the enthusiasm among the players at the Leipzig training session. And when, and for you, who's like filming, documenting all this, when you get there, you're like, Oh, this is not good. This is not the vibe we're going for. <laughs> it was real though. I mean, like, you know, uh, we sh- shot a little bit inside McKenney's car and I don't think this ended up making the final version of our video. We had some amazing like stuff on the cutting room floor, but like, he, you know, he talked about, the adjustment process as a young player to having that type of a season and how you deal with that being um, 
not fun, but something that you're going to go through at some point in your career, most likely. And, and how do you go about that and, and accept it and, uh, and respond to it? Um, you know, like that's, that's a real thing. And, uh, the, the other w- weird thing was at the time, Schalke was still alive in champions league against man city and had actually almost beaten man oh, city yeah. in the, in the round of 16 opening leg. And yet they were just imploding in the league. They ended up avoiding relegation, but you know, they finished second in the Bundesliga the previous season. And here they are, you know, being relegation threatened. Yeah. So they, uh, they're maybe not having the trajectory they would have liked. I did enjoy in terms of the structure of the episode that your trajectory was you went from trying to navigate the streets of Germany yourself via your phone to <laughs> letting Weston McKinney do the driving. Is that about how it went? <laughs> so one fun thing about this stuff is when we, we say we were trying to get the players away from the club environment. That's typically, even if you do a one-on-one interview, that's typically what happens. You know, you're on a chair with, you know, two chairs mm-hmm. interviewing these guys at the training site. And one thing we found is if you interview a player while he's driving in his car, like they're, it's just, more relaxed mm-hmm. and they're more willing to, I think, give you a, a better interview. And they're also a little distracted. Yep. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it's legal to be interviewing somebody with a camera while they're actually driving, but, um, I'm sure it's fine, it, whatever. And it, it was just interesting to, to make some comparisons. So McKenney's driving this hot AMG Mercedes, like pretty fantastic car. And, you know, he's been there a little longer and and Tyler Adams had just gotten there a month earlier and was driving one of these like club issued Volkswagens. (laughs) I think he was looking forward to (laughs) maybe having some better wheels uh, as as time went on. And he was um, man, he was he was so sweet at the part where he's like waiting outside the restaurant deciding what he wants to order so he can say it properly. (laughs) Like that was I love that he's he's like this playing in front of 50,000 people every weekend or whatever, but then nervous to make a coffee order. Uh, That's a great insight of the Tyler Adams, I think. It was pretty great. Like, you know, he was like, you know, the, the secret is not just knowing what to say when you make yeah, the order, but right. what to say when they respond to you. And like, he thinks deeply about this. Damn. Well, I, I, it's, a, it's a great episode. Again, uh, how can people find uh, Exploring Planet Football? So it's on SITV. That's uh, the streaming channel uh, that uh, we have. Uh, we have a, a seven-day free trial. Uh, it's cheap otherwise. I think it's like five bucks a month. Uh, if you go beyond that, it's si.tv. Um, and we have this series. It's, um, you know, we go around the world uh, doing half hour episodes on they're a half travel show, half soccer show. And uh, they're about the, the culture of soccer in particular countries. So the two that are up there now are Iceland and uh, Germany with these U.S. national team guys. Uh, we have another one on Japan that comes out in a couple of weeks, and then another one on Argentina that comes out uh, a few weeks after that. And we're going to do more. It's it's been a lot of fun. So it sounds like you've got like uh, as hectic of a schedule as possible this summer because I'm assuming you're still also doing some reporting. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, so I'll be in France for the entirety of Women's World Cup for Sports Illustrated and for Fox Sports doing TV, um, and I mean. You know, honestly, my work on the the video stuff is basically done. So that's my next big thing. I leave for France on June second, and 
you know, we'll see what happens over there. Looking forward to it. There you go. Maybe, maybe that's your podcast sequel right there. But again, that podcast uh, is Throwback. That, that's available, I guess, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, but Grant, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about everything you've got going on, all the many projects. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.